May the Spirit of God build you up in faith and cause you to grow in love, friends. Amen. I've got a question for you as the first note there in your sermon folders. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask for anything there. But it's just something that I thought I'd start off by having you, you think about. Are you a Pentecostal? Is that a name, a label that you would apply to yourself? We heard that word in that first reading that we looked at this morning. right? As 2,000 years ago, Jesus' first disciples were gathered together in a little room, a house, on this festival holiday. And that holiday, this harvest festival, in Hebrew had the name the, the Feast of Weeks. But because the New Testament was written in Greek, we have its Greek name here for us, and it's the name we more commonly know it by, Pentecost. It's a word that means 50. This festival took place annually, 50 days after the Passover. Jews from all over the Roman world, we read, had come together to celebrate this this special festival, Pentecost festival in Jerusalem. And on this particular Pentecost, those disciples of Jesus gathered together in this house after he's ascended to heaven, they're visited in a special way by God's Spirit. This Spirit who visits them is God. Pentecost isn't a great day to go into a long and lengthy discussion of the, the Trinity because there's just so much else to talk about. But you can't celebrate Pentecost without remarking on the Trinity. right? Throughout the Bible, we're told that there's one God, and yet you've got this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who calls himself God, is called God by the writers. And then he tells the disciples if they've seen him, they've seen God, yet he also talks about these two others, his Father, the Spirit, whom along with him are people having divine authority, divine power, divine names. And his final word to the disciples before he ascends back to heaven is that they should baptize people in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, plural. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't an attempt to explain these words of Jesus. It's a summary of them. All throughout the history of the Christian church, people have stumbled at the doctrine of the Trinity because that that fact is somewhat lost on them. The Trinity, right, the Trinity, the way we express that truth is not an explanation of God. God is inexplicable. God is beyond us. The Trinity is a description of God. It is a summary of his own words about himself in the scriptures. This is who God says he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. On Pentecost, There were visible and audible signs of God the Spirit's presence in their house. These tongues of fire were read this morning. The sound of what our verse called a a driving wind, but as I was telling the kids, when you go into the Greek, I, I wish that that were translated a little differently. A violent wind almost makes this sound like a hurricane, like a tornado, something destructive. But the Greek here says, as Luke writes the book of Acts, he calls this a wind that moves things. A wind that carries with it propulsion and power, right? The kind of wind that if we heard that blowing outside, we'd run onto our porches, we'd pull down our sun umbrellas so they don't end up in Long Island Sound. And it's this wind that that blows the disciples out the doors, into the streets, to share the good news of Jesus with all these pilgrims. as 
they do so, Jesus' disciples are given this remarkable, miraculous ability that day to speak in all the languages of this crowd. And the crowd marvels at this miracle. They wonder, what exactly is going on? Peter seizes this opportunity, and he goes ahead and begins to preach. We heard a clip selection of his message in Acts 2 this morning. He points the crowd to the, the signs and the miracles which Jesus performed while he was on earth and says that these were confirmation to you, my fellow Israelites, he says, of God's message about this Jesus. This is the appointed Savior of the world. This was the Messiah. Peter essentially says, you should have been able, looking at this Jesus fellow, looking at everything that he did here on earth, to see that this was God's chosen servant, his Messiah, the one he had promised to send standing here in front of you, yet you crucified him. Then, Peter says, God raised him to life. That was another sign, Peter says. That was another sign, one that you cannot ignore. His message, we read, cuts the people to the heart. And they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? Help us. We know that you speak the truth, Peter. We're convicted. Peter has a simple prescription for them. Repent and be baptized, he says. Repent. Express your sorrow over your guilt and turn away from what has brought guilt on you. In this case, turn away from rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and instead recognize him as such. How will they do that exactly? How will they recognize Jesus as the Messiah? Be baptized. Every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism will be how these people express their repentance. It was the means by which the Savior that they crucified would bring the forgiveness that he won on that cross to these sinners. Baptism is a, a promise from God for the sinner, not a promise from the sinner for God. Baptism is not a sinner promising to obey God. Baptism is God washing sinners clean. Peter makes that explicitly clear. Verse 39, he calls baptism, the forgiveness in there, a promise, the promise of forgiveness in baptism from God to you. The promise is for you. The promise is for your children. Promises for all. 3,000 people hear this message of forgiveness. 3,000 people believe this. 3,000 people were baptized that very day. God gave new birth into his kingdom to 3,000 people through water and the Spirit, just as Jesus described to Nicodemus in our Gospel reading. In that story, in that reading, you've got Jesus connecting the Holy Spirit to baptism. The Holy Spirit's presence saturates the Pentecost story as well. You've got the disciples waiting in the house for Jesus to send them the Holy Spirit as he had promised. It's the Spirit who comes on them, that, that wind, those tongues of fire, drives them out of the house, gives them this miraculous ability to speak all these different languages. It's the Spirit who's described as Peter draws on the words of the prophet Joel. It's the Holy Spirit who cuts the crowd to the heart through Peter's words. It's the Holy Spirit who leads 3,000 of them to believe in this promise that Peter is holding out to them in baptism. It's that same Spirit who Peter promises will be poured out on them as well through baptism. What's that going to look like for them? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit is poured out on someone? I've got a couple of words there in your sermon notes and a, a brief definition. Two words kind of paired together, Pentecostal, charismatic. Both words 
describe Christians who hold the theological conviction that there are particular gifts promised in the Bible to believers which still today are meant to serve as signs of the Holy Spirit's presence. And many Pentecostals, Charismatics, would point to what they would call tongues as the most prominent of these gifts. Got a couple more words here for you, $20 words. I'm going to call these xenoglossy and glossolalia there for you in your service folder. And here's your definitions there. Xenoglossy is the inexplicable ability of someone to speak in a language which that which they had not naturally acquired. Xenoglossy is what happened at Pentecost. You've got the disciples, these Galileans, who probably spoke some Aramaic, Greek, maybe a bit of Hebrew, but not the language of the Parthians and the Medes, not the language of the Cretans and the Arabs and the Elamites. Suddenly they're able to speak these languages which they could not naturally have learned. And everyone's marveling at this very fact. Glossolalia is your other $20 word this morning. It's the speaking of incomprehensible sort of speech-like syllables, right? When people talk about speaking in tongues, that's usually what is being referenced, right? Incomprehensible speech that belongs to no known language. I've never personally witnessed someone claiming to manifest glossolalia, right? that kind of incomprehensible speech. I've seen recordings. I know a few of you have seen people uh, exhibiting what they called glossolalia, speaking in tongues. And glossolalia, right? this incomprehensible speech, is what Pentecostals, Charismatics expect hold out as, as evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence for believers. But I've got two particular problems with this. Right? One, as, as a Bible teacher, one, incomprehensible speech just isn't what happened at Pentecost. It simply isn't what's described in the text of Scripture. But my second problem is pastoral. Right? That, it has, that is to say it has to do with my care for souls. Charismatic theology ultimately teaches that Christians should expect their faith to be confirmed by special gifts from the Spirit. There's a a charismatic church I know, which makes this fairly explicit in their statement of faith. They would say, speaking in tongues, and they mean glossolalia, incomprehensible speech, is God's promise, available to all believers. I've got a pastoral problem with that. What does such a teaching do to the heart of someone who doesn't experience such gifts, right? What are they going to ask themselves? Am I really saved? Do I really believe? The pastoral problem I have with this is something that we would call assurance. How do I know that I am God's? How do I know that I belong to God? How do I know that God has worked on my heart? On Pentecost, Peter does not tell the crowd that they ought to expect special gifts like that as their assurance of faith. He tells them to be sure about two things, though. One is the law. He says, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah, a law message. Be sure of it. Then he tells them, be sure of the gospel. He holds out baptism as forgiveness, as a promise from God. A promise, he says. What's a promise from God? It's something you can be assured of. It's something you can be certain about. It's something that you can cling to. Peter on Pentecost holds out law, gospel, sureness to the crowd. You are sinners. There is forgiveness. 
Pentecostalism, charismatic theology, doesn't hold out that same assurance to God's people. Pentecostalism does not hold out the sureness of, I am a sinner, I am saved. Pentecostalism holds out this assurance. If you really believe, you can expect these particular gifts, these particular signs, these particular wonders. For the individual believer, God has not designated signs such as tongues and healings to be confirmation of their status as his children. God has designated baptism and the Lord's Supper as his tangible means of comforting and assuring and encouraging us. Right? If we ask ourselves that question, do I really belong to God? Is he at work in my heart? Has he touched me? Then I should not look to my own giftedness, but I should look outside of myself to where God makes promises to me. We hear what Peter says here at Pentecost. How, do they, how will the people know that their repentance has taken effect? How will they know that they've turned away from rejecting Christ? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is God's promise. Or, we read from Paul, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12 earlier, before talking about the works of the Spirit, do you know what he talks about in chapter 11? The bread of the supper is Christ's body given for you. The cup is Christ's blood shed for you. See, every time in the New Testament that you find a discussion of the miraculous and wondrous gifts that the Spirit of God can give, certainly can, who can limit God, you will yet not look far to find a discussion of baptism. You will not look far to find a discussion of the Lord's Supper. Because while the Spirit of God can give whatever gifts he would like to give to any one of God's people, again, who can limit God, when God wants to give us assurance, when God wants to give us certainty, forgiveness, hope, joy, peace, he tells us to look in these two particular places where he holds out the promise of forgiveness, of life, strength and faith of salvation. Pentecostalism doesn't do that. And I've been taking enough shots at Pentecostalism, I think. Now I'm going to take some pot shots at confessional conservative Lutheranism. Because sometimes we can also, despite the fact that we're not going to look for our comfort, our assurance, our strength, and our consolation in signs and wonders, tongues and healing, we can also be tempted to look away from those particular gifts of God, from the word and sacrament, for our comfort, for our assurance. The biggest one, I would say, for confessional conservative Lutherans, we have good doctrine. We teach the word of God and its truth and purity. Amen? I believe that. If I did not believe that, if I thought that conservative confessional Lutheranism erred, I would not be wearing these robes as a Lutheran pastor before you this morning. But if I start looking at that, to tell me, well, you must, Tim, be a true child of God. Because you've got good doctrine. Because you've got it figured out there. Because you know what the scriptures teach and they don't. They've got it wrong. Woe is me. I ought to ask myself, what is that good doctrine doing for me? 
Does that good doctrine have behind it the wind of the Spirit blowing me out into the lives of people who need to know about Jesus? Because if it doesn't, then my doctrine's not even that good. The Pentecostals have better doctrine than I do. At least they're out there evangelizing. If I get hung up on on who I am, take pride in my, my good doctrine as a Lutheran, and the good name that Lutheranism has, I had to watch out. Pentecost turns us away from both of those things. See, Pentecost is a second commandment event. In Pentecost, Peter reveals to the crowd, you've got nothing going for you. God-fearing Jews from all over the world, people who are scrupulous to follow the laws of God, who have made pilgrimage to Jerusalem in obedience to God's law. You have crucified the Lord of glory. You have killed the Messiah of God. Nothing going for him. Not their right doctrine, not their good living. It's squat. Their names are mud. Said Peter holds out the name of Jesus to them. Repent. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The Pentecost like I said, is a second commandment event. What do I mean by that? The second commandment that God gives on Sinai is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. That is to say, God's name shall be the name that we honor above all things. God's name, not my name, Tim. Not the name Lutheran. No name is worth honoring above the name of God. Pentecost makes us ask ourselves that. Do we see God's name as the name that we want to see honored, revered, proclaimed above every name? Or do I wish, down in my heart's basement, for the name Tim Walsh to get some glory and honor from people? Pentecost makes me ask, do I want people to think well of Tim Walsh? Do I want people to hear my words and nod along and say, that's a smart dude, that's a good preacher? Do I want to impress people with my giftedness? Even if, right, I very humbly say no to God, all the glory, don't I want a little bit of that glory? Pentecost makes me ask myself, do I defend my own name's honor in unchristian ways? When the law is preached to me, does it cut me to the heart? Does the Holy Spirit do that work? Or do I get defensive? Do I go on the attack? Right, when another Christian comes and tells me that they were hurt by something I said, by something I did, do I go, well, I didn't mean that. If if you heard that, I'm sorry, faux apologies, meant to cover up my own name, meant to protect my own name's honor in my eyes. In the Pentecost story, the Holy Spirit shows us that, that just like those, those crowds gathered for the Pentecost festival, there's nothing in our names that's worth protecting like that. Our names are covered in mud. There's nothing there worth getting defensive about. Instead, Pentecost turns us to our baptisms. To the name of the Savior placed on us there. Pentecost then turns me toward others. It blows me out into their lives so that I can glorify God there. Not in my own giftedness, but in my faith in him and my love for them. Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit is gifted in baptism, but what does Paul say about that Holy Spirit who's gifted to us? The Holy Spirit is not gifted to us for our own personal aggrandizement. 
for our own honor and glory. Peter says that the, or Paul says the Spirit works in and through us for It's a, an excellent bridge. What Pentecost does is it takes us from, again, what I talked about earlier, this festival half of this church here, tracing the life of Jesus, seeing him at work, seeing his ministry. We walk with him through that first half of the year, and then at Pentecost we're sent out as the church, commissioned to share his name. What we call this uh, this second half of the church here, sometimes we call it very plainly the non-festival half, but there's another name for it that I prefer. We call it ordinary time. Because that's what the Christian life really is. It's ordinary time. It's ordinary life. It's getting up. It's doing what needs to be done. It's, it's, it's loving my neighbors whom God places, sometimes under the very same roof as me, sometimes in the same workplace as me. That's loving them. Ordinary time. Ordinary life empowered by God's Holy Spirit, gifted with His gifts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To glorify his name through faith and through love. There was that question I asked at the beginning, right? Are you a Pentecostal? And we kind of talked about what that, what that definition usually provokes. Right? The charismatic idea, the, the, that looking for those particular signs and gifts and wonders to confirm your faith. I'm going to offer you guys another definition. A Pentecostal is instead a Christian who lives in the the small s spirit of Pentecost. A Christian who treasures the second commandment, who, who treasures and honors God's name. And if that's you, then you're a real Pentecostal. Amen.